You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. You may be seated. That was beautiful. All of you get into this plus. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you, Denise. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Israel's strength and consolation, joy of every longing heart. Hi, I'm Brad Jessen. I'm one of the elders here at Covenant Church. And today we're going to continue our Advent series. Hank opened this mini-series last week with the hope of Advent. And we'll, we'll close us next week talking about the expectation of Advent. But today we're going to focus on the promise of Advent. And that, 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 the concept of promise is just all over this time of year. So we're examining this through the eyes of Luke as he records the presentation of Jesus at the temple. And where we meet two wonderful people, Simeon and Anna. There's, there's a lot that we could focus on and frame and discuss and dig and mine in this passage. But as Hank disclosed last week, we're going to talk about promise fulfilled so first we have to ask ourselves this basic question. And that question is this. If you could express the feel of these verses in an image, what would you choose? Maybe something like this. <laughs> oh, listen, this needs more covenant. Zach, can you put more covenant in this, please? Thank you. This is, this is way better. That's, that's much better. All right. All right. I've done this gag before. Guilty, right? But uh, pardon me for wanting to set up running gags in my sermons and also uh, honoring Dolan in this special way. Anyway, there, there's this real sense of electricity in this passage. And I, and I feel like... I feel like we all, uh, I, I don't know, maybe you didn't, but I mean, when we sing the song, Come Thou Expectant, Long Expected Jesus, right? That that's the kind of electricity that has, there's a real buoyancy in this passage where these two people just kind of burst onto the scene and they perform their part perfectly and then we don't really hear about them anymore. And even though there's a real somber note in the middle of this passage, it really has this really, it's happening kind of feel. So, all right, let's read it and let's get started. Um, it's in Luke chapter 2, 22 through 38. And don't make the mistake that I did and turn to Acts several times. All right, here we go. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it was written. In the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. 
And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and also for a sign that is opposed, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel and of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that, that you would guide this message today, that you would anoint it for our hearts and our ears and our minds, that it would bring us closer to you, and that we would have a fuller understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, our big brother, by whom we would not have a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Simeon and Anna saw this long-awaited promise fulfilled, and there are aspects to how they respond that typify this excited response toward the fulfillment of a long-awaited promise. And as we examine this scene, I want to be careful on, on two accounts, because some of us maybe are reading this for the first time. But I want to be even more careful because I know some of us are not reading it for the first time, and that includes myself. And here's what I mean. Here's why to be cautious. See, when we read a Bible passage for the second and especially for the tenth or more times, we run into a danger of reading it from memory and not from the text. And by this I mean when we read, we have these distilled high points that happen in the story or passage, and we remember these, or we have these vivid images that we often couple with what we're reading as to what actually happened. And we read the text looking for these points and coloring it with these images. Our brains swing above the text, resting at these familiar places for a moment, and then zipping to the next rest stop. I include myself in this again. I am most guilty of it. So why and stop and make this observation here? Of course, we could say this about any time we read the Bible or really any time we read a text. But I have a hunch that most of you, as I do, have a certain flow of events in mind for this passage and, and certain images about how characters look and respond and interact with one another. I think the common understanding of the passage goes something like this. So there's this guy, Simeon. He's a wonderful old man. Every day he goes to the temple and picks up babies. And he sees a couple over there. Hello, ma'am. Yes. Oh, can I hold your baby? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, mm -hmm. yes. He's a fine child. Okay. Bless you. Bless you. Bless you. Oh, oh well, there's another over there. Uh, excuse me, ma'am. Can, can I hold your baby? Oh, she's a girl. Oh, she's just wonderful. You're going to be a fine mother. Oh, you, you have seven children already. Okay. You are a fine mother. There you go. Oh, this, that's wonderful. And, I'm, I, so, uh, and, and he's just pinging around to couple after couple after couple, just loving on babies. Isn't it great? This guy, Simeon. And you know, guess what? There's also this older lady there, too. Her name's Anna. And she just hangs around the temple all the time. Like, you go there, and she's there. And you know what she's doing? She's kissing babies. She's blessing families. She's just loving on God, you know, and just doing that kind of thing. And, you know, the most marvelous thing happens. One day, 
Mary and Jesus and Joseph, they, they walk into the temple. And, you know, Simeon's going about doing his thing, and Anna's going about doing his thing, picking up and kissing babies, right? And he, he, he's, he picks up Jesus, as, as he does with lots of babies, right? He says, well, golly Moses, it's the Messiah. I can't believe that. And he sings a little song he makes up on the spot. And Anna, when she gets her chance, she goes around telling people, oh, what a wonderful baby Jesus is. The end. Now, isn't that a great story? It's a wonderful story. But unfortunately, it's a caricature of what Luke records. Should we come to ask ourselves the point of this story that, that's told here, what would it be? Well, we would come to the conclusion that the world needs more baby-kissing, church-going people who spend their days sprinkling joy around and blessing people. <laughs> now, now listen, before you jump down my throat, the conclusion's not totally off-target, okay? The, certainly, the world does need more people like that. And even in this very rudimentary understanding of who Simeon and Anna are. But if we stop here with our understanding today, then we've missed a great deal, and dare I say, the larger point that Luke is trying to tell us. And that's the danger of reading from memory. The passage's main point isn't about Simeon and Anna. It's about the promise. So how do I mean? So at the beginning of Luke, as Brandon read earlier, the promise was revealed to his parents, and then some of the close family, and then as he was born, a select group of people came and were let in on what was happening. But this passage is the part in the story of how the promise became officially public. So this is what we see before us in Luke 2, through 28. The open de declaration to the people of Israel of a promise long-awaited, being fulfilled, and done so in front of their very eyes. It is with this new and best framework that we'll proceed. So as we take each section in turn, I want to start by giving a few words that encapsulate the content of the verses and serve to frame kind of the description of the promise that is being confirmed. So we're going to go through and note some, some descriptions of the promise that Luke gives. Now there are five sections and there are 12 words, so we've got to be quick. But my prayer is that we will be edified as we understand this promise more fully by the end. And, okay, this is fair warning. There are a plethora of P words about to be pronounced in what follows, so all I can say is, you know, prepare yourself. <laughs> all right. In the first three verses, Luke introduces us to the punctual, prescribed, and perfect nature of the promise. I wasn't kidding about the P words. As I read the first words of verse 22, when the time came, I immediately took note of it. Maybe some of you did too. But the promise is punctual. It's precisely on time. It's not late. It's not early, but right on time. This is honestly, I think, the most difficult part of this promise or any promise, isn't it? I mean, the timeliness of the promise. Look, when's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? I mean, Hank quoting Jared last week said, and I want to say it again, we suck at waiting. And, and I mean, we are utterly terrible at it. No one wants to wait now. You don't want to wait for your birthday presents. You don't want to wait for the web page to load. And you certainly do not want to wait in that line at Walmart. You just want your milk. Anyway, waiting is the worst. So now picture the earth. All right. Blue sphere, got some green patches anyway around. 
so now, the entirety of God's creation, waiting for millennia, waiting for thousands of years for this moment since Genesis 3 to be released from sin. You see the people of Israel who have collectively waited well over a thousand years for their Messiah since his promise after the Exodus? I find it difficult to fathom waiting one year for something, let alone ten. And a hundred years is impossible for me to wait on something at this point, unless the Lord is entirely gracious. But let alone talking about waiting a thousand years. Listen, my great, 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 great grandchildren, that's, that's six generations removed from me, don't even get halfway to the mark of a thousand years. But God is patient. And now the time has come, and the promise arrives at the perfect time, according to God's design. Next, God's promise is prescribed. Luke tells us that his parents go to the temple because God directed them according to the law of Moses. This promise doesn't come out of left field, and neither does it depart from the pattern God has established beforehand. Rather, it is fulfilled according to the prescription and the very law of God had given to the Israelites. Christ himself says that he came to fulfill the law in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, and he did so perfectly, fully, and completely. This brings us to our third word here, perfect. So the promise is perfect in its fulfillment. We just noted twice the perfection of time and obedience. And I want you to notice, too, that when the time came for their purification, too. But I fear that we let this perfection, like the, the attribute of Christ as perfect in obedience, become a common reality to us rather than a marvel. I mean, how many times have we noted that Jesus was perfectly obedient and immediately the picture in our head is an adult Jesus following all the commands? We must understand that the perfection in obedience starts long before his adulthood. You see it here in the plain text that the baby Jesus fulfills the law even before he's able to stand. He fulfills the law before he's able to stand. Here, I mean, he's just doing it. I mean, it's stunning. The providential hand of God is keeping his perfect promise to his people from all eternity, and he does not fail to apply that promise in time in a perfect way. Now, the next few verses, 25 through 28, introduce us to a new person, Simeon, who is only briefly a part of the biblical story, yet he nevertheless plays a crucial part. With his interest in these verses, we learn that this promise was planned and ponderous. So it was planned. We know this because Simeon was plainly told, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Incidentally, you can't wait for something that hasn't been planned, right? So how do I know this, you may ask. And so let me ask you this question. Do you know what you call it when a whole bunch of people are in one place and they're just hanging out, right? And then all of a sudden, something happens. Do you know what you call it? Surprise! <laughs> you weren't waiting on it? <laughs> Jesus' arrival is a promise and not a surprise for the very same reason. It was expected to happen, and it wasn't a surprise. 
We have further evidence of its planned nature because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is heavily at work in its fulfillment in these verses. Three times he is mentioned. God's Spirit, by divine providence, which had fallen on Simeon and given him a personal promise that Simeon would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This promise is on top of the promise of the consolation of Israel itself. So Simeon had two promises that he was waiting on, not just one. Furthermore, it was in the spirit that Simeon had come into the temple. We see this from that it was not some haphazard luck of the draw that Simeon just happened to see the child of Jesus that day, but it was part of God's plan from all eternity. And what was Simeon's response? It was a ponderous response. It was marked by heavy thoughts and deep contemplation. We can tell this by the posture that the Bible notes that he took. The Bible says he took him in his arms and blessed God. Now, the word for this action to, to take in arms, right? It's, it's not like a toss in the air. It's not like Simba and the Lion King. Like, I mean, this is not what Simeon is doing in the temple. Like, he is not presenting the baby Jesus like this, okay? The word here that's used in the Greece is agkalos. And its only use in the New Testament is right here. It means the crook of the arm, an arm that's adjusted so it can receive a burden. It's the cradling arm that moms and dads used for their firstborn child the first time that they hold him or her. What do they do? They, they make a pocket and they let the weight of the baby's body settle in and become a part almost of the holder. It drags you down slightly to one side, but it keeps the precious gift of life safe and at rest. That's how Simeon received Jesus. And as the baby pressed on Simeon's arm, he knew that he held in that arm the very salvation of God. That's how. It really is a thing to behold that God would become a baby. There were many in that day that expected a warrior or a messiah, a warrior messiah, and many of you know that already. We know that is what the people much later in the Gospels expected when they cried Hosanna in the streets and they laid their coats in the mud and they waved palm, dressing, uh, palm branches in the air saying, save us, save us, save us. We are again so familiar with this story that we might also miss the fact that perhaps Simeon himself even expected a warrior, some kind of political war, ruler, or maybe just anybody with might or power to deliver his people when he was promised to see the Lord's Christ. But you can almost see the scene now, and we see it in a different way, where Simeon goes up to the temple, his eyes fall on the mother and on the father, and then the baby and the Holy Spirit whispers to him, Simeon, there he is. It's electric. Simeon walks over and he takes the child into his arms and deeply tucks him close to his chest and he marvels, a baby. The Messiah is a baby. He is in my arms. What? A wonderful thing. And he rocks him slowly. 
and a song rises from his heart. He blesses God above, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people, Israel. That song is the next section. And we see that this promise is both praiseworthy and prophesied. The promise is indeed praiseworthy. Having held the baby, the promise in his hands, Simon erupts in song. And how fitting that is. This is why we get together and we sing in church. As he sings, he praises the Lord above for keeping his word. And he rejoices at the fulfillment of what the promise means. This promise was prophesied, and you know that well, because last week we discussed several prophecies, Hank did in Genesis and Isaiah. The language used in these verses have specific ties to Old Testament prophecies. They're up on the screen. Isaiah 42, 6, 49-6, 52-10, all speak about the light and God's salvation open to the Gentiles. And Isaiah 63 says, all nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. You see, this promise was never meant to be locked up away to only the Jews, but it was a blessing for all people. This was universality of promise was always a component of God's blessing instruction to his people. However, this revelation is like no other because now God is personally taking back all creation by sending his son. Isaiah 45 and 25, uh, excuse me, chapter 25, chapter 45, verse 25, and chapter 46, verse 13, talk about the connection between this promise and Israel's glory. Salvation comes from the Jews, Jesus himself says to the woman at the well in John 4. This is the way it was always going to be, and this thread of the Old Testament bears out. Now, as some of you know, this is, well, let me back up. This glory is not a sense of ethnic pride for being a child of Abraham. As you know, Jesus corrects the Pharisees and says, out of these stones God can make children of Abraham. But what it is is an acknowledgment of the blessing that God has bestowed on his chosen people. What a great honor bestowed by God upon the Jewish people that the Messiah should come from them. We could spend hours cross-referencing and criss-cross-referencing all the prophecies and their imagery here, and, and even some of the New Testament prophecies, which again Brandon read at the, at the beginning of the Annunciation to Mary, but we, we have, we've got to move on. And Jesus' parents are amazed at what has been said. Even after all the things, seeing an angel in their face, they're still amazed at this. But Simeon continues to prophesy. Again, these words that we're about to read can also be uh, traced to Old Testament passages, but there's a shift in tone as we read on with verse 34. The middle section of this passage takes a darker turn. Not all will rejoice at the fulfillment of this promise as the man Simeon before them has done. 
This promise will cause many to become agitated at its arrival. Another way of saying this would be to say the promise is perturbing. It stirs people up to act against it, persecuting those who follow it. Simeon said this promise is a sign that is opposed. And that much is made plain by the end of the Gospels. The Pharisees, Sadducees, and even those who followed him worked together to hatch a plan on lies to kill Jesus. They just could not stand how Jesus' teaching, even his very presence, exposed their hypocritical hearts and minds before the people of Israel. As we've discussed previously, a, a primary reason that this was opposed is because this was not the promise that many were looking for. This brings about their downfall, and while others will rise, it will not be without sacrifice. This persecution translates into the promise being painful for both the Messiah and his followers. He will be flogged, mocked, nailed to a cross, blood pouring out of every part of his body in order to finish the fulfillment of the promise. Mary, as with all the disciples, will see him publicly defamed, publicly disgraced, and publicly executed on the outside of town like a criminal rebel that he was not. And even though they will feel it, she as his mother will also feel it even more so, and it will run her through. We shift again in verse 36, the tone. It's kind of left there. And we're introduced to Anna, a prophetess, who shares Simeon's characteristics of being righteous and devout, and also of his excitement at the promise fulfilled. And as she steps on the scene, she shows us that now at last, this promise is publicly proclaimed. No longer will the promise remain hidden, but it is to be spoken to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, don't, don't get tied up in the terms like, well, you know, there's the consolation of the Israel and the deliverance of Zion and the redemption of the Jerusalem. This is, these are all different ways to talk about the same thing. And much to say, we'd say, you know, the United States is the 48 or 50 states, right? And then you refer to Washington, D.C. to refer to the political capital of the entire United States. This is, this is what's going on here. So don't think that there's some, like, secret message in, oh, the consolation of Israel versus the redemption of Jerusalem. They're, they're the same thing. From her biography, we see Luke communicating how perfectly suited she was for this role as the first public proclaimer. Luke notes that she had been in this capacity of service for some time, and so we can infer from this that she was also some kind of fly-by-night charlatan trying to make a quick buck or gain inappropriate influence over people. Some commentators offer that she may have even had a residence in the temple, but regardless of this fact, Anna was undoubtedly at least an unofficial fixture in the temple economy. She would have been instantly recognizable not only to those who came to the temple daily, but also those coming year by year by year, given her longevity of service. And as a prophetess, she was trusted by the people to speak the words of the Lord to them. Now that the purpose of this section, which Luke has written, comes into full view, this is where the scene ends. With the proclamation of the fulfilled promise to those who have waited and expected it for so long, at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting on the redemption of Jerusalem.
So properly framed, we now clearly understand the point that Luke is driving us toward. It is open before all of Israel that the promise from long ago is fulfilled and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. If you just want to go back, that's fine. There was supposed to be a whole list of all of them just together, but that's fine. We now understand how rich the promise is with all these adjectives. There it is. Boom. The promise was punctual, it was prescribed, and it was perfect. It came at the right time, it came in the right way, and it was complete, and it was without error. It was planned, and it was ponderous. It wasn't left to chance, but it was done according to design. And it brought forth with it the cause for reflection and wonder. As praiseworthy and prophesied, we learn that it is deserving of our amazement and that it is wrapped in the history that God had spoken and woven together beforehand. But it was also perturbing for many, riling them up to fight against the promise, which will be painful for the promised one and for those who would follow him. Finally, as we just discussed, it is publicly proclaimed so that all may know and none can claim to be ignorant of it. All right, now that I've pelted you with all these P words in describing the characteristics of the promise, I must admit there's one more thing that we still lack. And if you will indulge me for just one more, I'd like to focus the rest of our time on the purposeful nature of the promise. See, we understand by very definition that the promise, every promise has a, a substance, a goal, an end in mind, and this promise is no different. So what is this promise's purpose? If I took a straw poll of all of you who were familiar with the Bible and Christianity, we would all say, salvation. This is, this is Simeon's answer in, in his song. He said that his eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. Salvation is the promise. Salvation is finally here. And that, friends and loved ones, is the whole, it's the whole shebang of this passage. It's what it's all about. Salvation has come finally, and oh, what a joy it is. But again, we have to ask, if we're clarifying our terms, salvation from what? What exactly is this promise, and how is it fulfilled all those years ago which caused Simeon and Anna to sing, prophesy, and rejoice? The Bible tells us plainly in Matthew 1.21 that Jesus will save his people from their sins. And we turn back the pages to Genesis 3 with Hank's message last week, and we there again ask, what's the problem? It's sin. Romans 5 explains this really clearly. Now, I've shortened it a little bit. You'll notice some, some ellipses, some dots, where I've strategically taken some things out. But I've shortened it a bit to make this point. Romans 5, 12 through 18. Therefore, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world. Death reigned from Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. So, now we get to the real heart of the matter. 
and I, and I mean, if you just ask like the common person or whatever, maybe even some people in this room, I mean, even myself at times, we would not describe the condition of humanity as bleakly as this, as gone as this. But that's the problem, is that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. In Adam, all people are doomed to God's judgment and God's wrath. Because a holy, perfect, and righteous God cannot, will not, and does not tolerate rebellion against his commands. But that's not the end of the story. You see, Adam, if you notice in the middle, was a type of one who was to come. See, even the first man to walk the face of this earth pointed to the very redemption that all humankind needed. Isn't that it's bonkers? This was Hank's point last week, and we see both the curse, the hope, and the fulfillment of all of that in verse 19 as Paul goes on in Romans chapter 5. For as by one man's, that's Adam's, disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's, that's Christ's obedience, many will be righteous. And if you go back and read the entirety of Romans 5, 12 through 19, it's full of this back and forth between the first Adam and sin and death and judgment and the last Adam and Jesus and justification and life and the free gift. And here's the lesson. All of space and time, the very gravity of the entire universe and all creation pulls towards the moment when Christ's death and resurrection happens. And here, in this moment that we're talking about today, my friends, is where the beginning of that journey is made officially public. Salvation, the forgiveness of sins for the restoration of humans into communion with God, promised from the very beginning, is finally here. Now, we see fully what Simeon was so excited about and why Anna had to tell it to everyone that was in the temple that day, and no doubt the next day, and the next, and every day thereafter. This is truly something to exult in the biblical hope, that assurance of all creation, the salvation from the power of sin is finally here, and it's happening on the world stage for all to see. I, I want to end today with a verse in Galatians, Galatians 3.29. And if you were in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Isn't that a wonderful thought? I, I just, I, I couldn't not put it in here. There's even a catchy song for this that we learned in Clubhouse, and don't worry, I'm not going to sing it to you. I've already sing, sung to you once, and I'm not going to subject you to that again, but I'm subjecting the next service to it, don't worry. <laughs> so no, you're not alone. It's a, it, anyway, if you trust in Jesus... As your Savior, and as Simeon calls him, your salvation, if he is crowned Lord over your heart and your soul and your body and your mind, your whole being, the promise made to Abraham and the promise fulfilled publicly and proclaimed in our passage today, and every good promise from God is yours. The very word of God declares it. It's right there. That, friends and loved ones, is good news. And it is to be proclaimed today and this day in the public square in the very same way as Simeon and Anna did those many years ago. So, 
the challenge today is twofold, as always, and it is always divided by the answer to this simple yes or no question. Do you trust in Christ as Savior and salvation from your sins? The promise of forgiveness has been fulfilled, and it is recorded in the Bible just as we've studied today. If you've not yet trusted, from, trusted him, or maybe today you have, for the first time, quite rightly understood the question and the answer, the Bible tells us that today is the day of salvation. The gift of salvation is freely given, no cost to you, by the only one who can Jesus, the Messiah, consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem, the light of the world, the Lamb who was slain, the risen King over all. And if this is you, and if the Spirit is moving your heart, I mean, even if the Spirit is not moving your heart, we would love to talk with you. I would love to talk to you. Talk with any of the elders. If you need a friend, grab them by the arm and come talk with us about the greatest gift that was ever given. Now, on the other hand, should you answer yes to this question, I want to leave you with a challenge. Now, there's, like I said, a lot to cover in this passage, by the way, of how we should live in light of the promise, but look forward with expectation next week for that's what we will be discussing as Hank talks about expectation and how we live. But instead, I'd like to leave you with a smaller and a simpler but no less difficult challenge. It's one that I ran into repeatedly, personally, when I was researching and writing this, and I must admit that I still find myself struggling with it, and that's not just being overly humble, I promise. The challenge is this. Let's make Christmas about Christmas, shall we? Christmas is about this fulfilled promise and the forgiveness of sins. It's not a squeezable baby Jesus who is so cute and precious, and he's sitting in this nice clean straw in the company of all these well-groomed shepherds and good-smelling animals, and there's a bright star above it, and there are presents all around. You know, that's a pleasant and sterile picture that we can put on cards and we can exchange them with one another and we can encourage one another, right? I mean, maybe even, you know, uh, sign a couple and give it a couple to your pagan or unsaved friends, right? Pass it around and maybe they'll realize what a wonderful celebration they're missing. If we're going to be people of the promise, as Paul reminds us in Galatians, then Christmas cannot be about presents that will break tinsel that will be trashed, trees that will shed their bare branches, whether they're real or fake, they do shed, and lights that will burn out. Neither can the nativity be some kind of elf on the shelf that comes out once a year when the calendar reads December. It is a promise that is fulfilled, real, and year-round. It is an eternal reality in which every Christian lives, moves, and breathes daily. Simeon was not satisfied until he saw the consolation of Israel. And Anna, Anna responded with a joy that couldn't be kept to herself. Their example was in the past few weeks and continues to be, to me, a great challenge. And I, I hope by God's grace to meet it, and I pray that you, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, will take up this challenge and meet it as well. Now, this is a really heavy way to end a message about Jesus and, and the nativity and Christmas, and I acknowledge that. But I want this, and we need this to be an encouragement that will last past December 25. 
So I'd like to respond in the way Simeon did, with a song, and one that I think reflects his own. As Joseph comes up to play, I want to read one of the the verses that we often skip up. Um, All of them are great, but maybe in the culture of the first, the second, and the last, you may have missed this one. And it's this. No more let sins and sorrow grow. No more thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. And as you sing this and you sing other carols, take time, reflect on the words and what they mean and how they point to a promise fulfilled. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.